Are you a big lemonade person? What about juice in general? Well, if you fall into either of those categories or just a fan of a company success story, then I've got a good one for you today with the logistics of Calypso Lemonade. Hello again, Blythe Bramley, host of the Digital Dispatch Podcast, covering how your favorite stuff and people get from point A to B. In this episode, John Jerry's, he's the COO of Calypso Lemonade. He joins the show to talk about the growth and transportation strategy of a nearly 20-year-old brand. Yes, 20 years old. I was surprised to learn that they've been around for that long because I've only recently found out about them within the last few years about just randomly stumbling upon them at a beachish sandwich shop. And then there are some of these other fun facts from the Calypso team on the rise of the popularity of this drink. In June of 2021, Calypso reported a more than 50% sales increase during the first half of the year. These numbers follow a record year of explosive 62% growth in 2020 during a pandemic and come on the heels of of a successful 2019 for Calypso, which saw a 33% growth in category-leading sales velocity in the core line of flavored lemonades. Calypso lights are now being sold in more than 7,000 outlets nationally, and that's the light version of their traditional lemonade. Whether it's light or the traditional lemonade, they have distribution building daily and nationally available at retailers such as Walmart, Kroger, Wawa, and more. Calypso is now the second largest player in the shelf-stable lemonade category, representing 75% of the category growth, surpassing Lipton Brisk. Those are some big name players to be alongside. So I know that I've kind of given you already a lot of information, but this is a really fun interview. It is a digital dispatch exclusive. So let's not waste any more time. Here's my conversation with John, the COO for Calypso Lemonade. Got John Jayers. Is that how I say the last name? COO of Calypso Lemonade? Jairus. Jairus. Okay. Well, Very thank close. you. As, as someone with uh, a, a difficult name, Blythe Brumleaf, it's it's challenging, I think, for other folks to to try to pronounce any names correctly. So uh, thank you for, for bearing with me on that pronunciation. But you're the COO of Calypso Lemonade. So so welcome in. Uh, give us a little bit of a background on, on who you are, how you how you joined the company, all that good stuff. So it's uh, well. Thanks for having me. Um, so it's almost painful to to say, but I've I've been in the food and beverage industry for over thirty years. Um, so it's a mighty long time. Um, background, you know, mostly manufacturing operations, uh, contract manufacturing, procurement. Um, lots of big companies, PepsiCo, uh, Unilever, ConAgra Foods for for most of my career. I joined Calypso about two and a half years ago, fourth quarter of uh, nineteen. Um, and, uh, you know, it's been a whirlwind ever since, you know, supporting a, a business that's growing at a rate of 50% a year plus. It's crazy too. Cause it, it, I didn't know that the brand has been around for this long. I, I only recently, I, I, you know, I, I live in Jacksonville, Florida, so a beach is 20 minutes from me. Um, so I've, I've had this drink plenty of times before, but I didn't know that the brand had been around for 20 years. Was it always under this brand or is it just now starting to gain, you know, sort of national and international exposure? You know, so it, it's always been under the, the, the Calypso name, hmm. uh, since the beginning and it, you know, 21 years, like you said, started by the founder, sold out of the back of a truck to, to, to local companies. And over time, you know, through independent distributors has grown. 
Um, I would say the last four to five years, that growth has accelerated uh, as the owner exited and uh, the business was bought by uh, Mason Wells. Leadership team was put in place to grow the business and, and uh, you know, rebranded, or I wouldn't say rebrand, but improve the brand, mm-hmm. shelf presence, uh, you know, a lot of work by by Matt, um, you know, on, you know, uh, online uh, marketing. Mm-hmm. Great sales team, driving distribution and execution of field, excuse me, um, has really accelerated that growth over the last three years in particular. And so with with the uh, juice company, typically I would think, I mean, I would just imagine, you know, I've traveled, you know, to the islands and things around, especially in the state of Florida, that you would have to live near a beach to make sort of a juice and a lemonade really good. How are you guys making a juice so good, but not necessarily being located near a beach? Well, it's not about the beach. It's it's about the ingredients. Um, so it's real lemon concentrate, you know, real lemon pulp, lots of natural flavors. Um, so you don't have to be on a beach to get those things to your bottling plant. Uh, you can you can do that right here in the Midwest uh, and uh, take that taste of the islands to the to the rest of the world. Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't just have to be the location. The location helps. Being on a beach definitely helps with whatever you're drinking. It, it could be really just something subpar. Probably the environment is is benefiting that drink more than the actual drink. But this is actually a really good drink. So give me a little bit of insight onto the supply chain of, of Calypso. Where are you guys, you know, getting your your fruit and your extracts and your and your pulp in order to make these? Um, you know, we, we source, you know, worldwide, you know, so lemon concentrate can come from California, uh, Argentina, Brazil, uh, Spain, uh, lemon pulp, lime concentrate, lime pulp, um, all from those, those same growing regions. Um, you know, we tend to, to focus on, on South America. Um, it's a high quality product, um, lots of availability, uh, and a lot of consistency. So, but it's a worldwide supply chain, you know, from a, from a standpoint of particularly the concentrates and pulp. I, I love the the South American angle because when I, I had visited Peru once and it was the best juice that I've ever had in my life. And they talked about how, you know, the different fruit, it's juicier there because of the higher altitude. And there's not that many places in the world that has, you know, high altitude, fertile lands in order to grow those those kinds of products. So I, I if you're sourcing from South America, that's definitely why I think it tastes better than anybody else, because it is I think it's just a completely different growing environment. Absolutely. Uh, you know, there's only specific agricultural regions that that'll support citrus growth, hmm. um, you know, particularly lemons. And, uh, you know, those are, are a few in, in our primary sources. Now, on the bottle itself, you, you mentioned earlier about how you you took it through a rebrand. You took the product itself through a rebrand and and changed a little bit of the label. Um, I believe it was also the the taste of the islands was added to the labeling as well. What all went into sort of that process of of trying to come up with what should be on a new label? Do you, it, were you involved in that process? Um, you know, I'm more. <laughs> I will say I'm more on the execution side. So I take those ideas from, you know, David, Matt and Bridget and, and take it to, uh, to real life. But, you know, I know Matt, you know, who heads up our marketing team and, and manages the brand, you know, tremendous amount of consumer research, mm. um, you know, goes into that. 
Um, you know, the, the, the labeling upgrade, you know, more about shelf presence and making it, you know, that it pop off the shelf. Um, you know, a lot goes into, you know, the flavor development, the color, um, all those things, you know, make it attractive, you know, to the consumer on the shelf. And then the guy like me then picks it up from there and, uh, you know, turns it into a real product that, that we sell and get on a shelf for consumers. And so there was also another interview um, that I had heard, and I'm I'm sort of paraphrasing here, but they said that that Calypso has seen so much growth through innovation and iteration. Could you give us a few examples of, of how Calypso has, you know, sort of innovated and iterated its product, especially over the last 20 years, to the extreme amount of growth that it's seen recently? Um, you know, so flavor profiles, um, you know, the, the launch of Island Wave, um, using multiple flavors, mango, papaya, along with lemonade, um, the light, you know, business in terms of obviously there's always, there's always demand for a lighter product when you're a sugar-based product. Um, so, you know, lots of development work in terms of that flavor profile, what are the right ingredients to use, um, to even, you know, the decision on whether you call it light uh, or zero, you know, mm -hmm. so again, all research based, um, you know, lots of different tries to, to get to what you think is, is the best product for the consumer, a lot of review by our management team and board um, to ultimately get to that, that final product that we launch. And then we watch closely in terms of how it performs, what our consumer response is um, to give us some feedback in terms of how it's doing. And of course, the sales um, that helps. You know, they tell the story, right. In terms <laughs> right. of how it actually does on a shelf. And so when, when, as far as the sales are concerned, um, in that same interview, you, you, you talked a little bit about how it Calypso competes with teas as well. In addition to, to being sort of a standalone lemonade category, you were regional first, and then you started distributing nationally. How does, what, goes on into the decision-making process when you decide to take a product from regional distribution to national distribution? You know, I, I think obviously the, the performance, you know, on a limited scale, you know, we get a lot of feedback from our distributors who know the markets, uh, you know, very well. Um, that performance then, you know, translates to discussions we have with a, a broader group um, of those distributors across the country. Um, their desire to support it, you know, that's that's a primary driver. You know, we're launching teas. A lot of that is driven by our customer base asking for it, you know, feeling that our brand can carry into that that category and, and needing uh, a, a strong player. Um, so using that kind of insight, you know, how are you guys making those decisions, those supply chain, those transportation decisions? Um, are you using distributors mainly oh. or are you using three, you know, three PLs? Or are you using any other kind of, of, of data points in order to measure where that demand is going to come from or even anticipate where that demand might go? Yeah. So that's a, that's a great question because we wouldn't be able to scale like we've had without a a good bit of, of, of planning and, and collaboration with our leadership team, with the sales team and the distributors. So, you know, we've, in the last two years, we've started an SNOP process. Um, we forecast on a distributor level, on a flavor level. Um, we project, so I do a lot of modeling in mm -hmm. terms of against projected growth rates to understand, okay, what is the supply chain? Do we need is in manufacturing capacity? 
uh, warehousing, transportation, obviously that drives material supply. Um, so yes, we, we, we do, I mean, that is something that, that we actively do every month and we're projecting 18 months out. So we know what levers we got to pull from a supply side in order to support uh, the growth of this business, because it, we, we've grown 50% a year for the last three years. So we've significantly scaled a supply chain that, that started out as, as one plant uh, running one shift a day with 25 people um, to a supply chain that has a plant that runs 24 hours a day with 125 people, plus three contract manufacturers, a 3PL and a 4PL that helps us manage our transportation. So all of that has been driven by, you know, near and long-term planning, um, you know, to manage that scale up. And how are you, I, I guess, approaching? I mean, it, it feels like everybody's supply chain and transportation plan has been thrown out the window over the last couple of years with all the, the influx and, you know, difficulties trying to even get supplies. Um, in, in that interview I was referencing, you, the, re, the way that you guys alleviated a lot of those supply chain challenges was by focusing on the component of the component. Are you yeah. able to speak a little bit on, on that strategy? Yeah, I mean it it's it goes back to that modeling starts with that forecast and you know it works its way all the way through to how much sugar do you need, how many bottles, caps, trays, uh flavor kits and components. Um so uh I, I think the key thing is is that forecast that that we've leveraged and what I would call, you know, supplier collaboration or relationship management. So, you know, through the last couple of years with there's two challenges, right? It's the 50% growth, and then you layer on top of that a pandemic, you know, that is driven, you know, supply shortages because of people, you know, uh, the availability of materials, et cetera. Um, so that long lead time and then collaborating with our suppliers very closely in terms of helping them understand our growth so they're not surprised, um, really trying to get into the detail of understanding what their challenges are and where they may have pinch points. And I'll give you an example. Um, our trace supplier, like everybody else, high, high demand challenges with people. In our, our regular conversations, they came to us and said, hey, you know what? We're really constrained with supply. Um, we'd love to get you into some of our other plants, but we need some help with, with adjusting some of the specs of your tray to make those plants capable. So we made that change. It had no impact on, you know, the product quality, the consumer, the supply chain at all, but it opened us up to, to three different plants where they could produce our product for us. But we would have never gotten to that if we weren't on a regular basis talking about how our demand's changing, what our needs are, what we're doing in the plant, where how we're scaling to third parties across the country. You'd never get to that without that regular conversation. So that's that's been a, a huge focus on it's what's gotten us through this um, along with changes in inventory strategy. So you know you have high demand, there's risk in their supply chains, there's risk in transportation. So in some cases we've taken new inventory positions to make sure that we're covered in case there's supply chain disruptions. And then probably the last piece not on a broad scale, but where we can and where it's appropriate, you know, we've started dual sourcing, you know, where we've added additional suppliers, we've split, we split our supply. It's not always the most cost effective, you know, approach, but it'll keep you in business in terms of having materials. 
True, because there are, it, there's been a few instances, especially with a, a couple retailers that I saw on on TikTok that are just they, they get your product in store and then they just freak out and it flies off the shelf. Flies off the shelf. So is that a? Are you guys? I guess more focusing on the the national distribution plan versus the international, or is there an international strategy in addition to the national strategy? Yeah, it is international. Um, and there's there's two things um, there's two things about that with the product flying off the shelf. So a um, year and a half ago, we changed our strategy from a make to order you know business where we received orders, we made the product and shipped it to a make to stock. And that's where we expand the plant. We run 24 hours a day. We run the same year round. We build inventory into our warehouse. So we're now shipping from inventory instead of shipping from an order, right? So that provides a lot more flexibility in terms of handling demand spikes from our customers, getting us through the summer season. Adding co-manufacturers to make our product in the U.S. is expanding that capacity and, and enabling that to happen. But additionally, internationally, we are starting up a co-manufacturer in Europe to support that business. That business has been growing almost at the same rate that our U.S. business has. And in a lot of ways, we've constrained it over the past couple of years as things have gotten tight. Um, you have to try to manage all your customer base and they probably haven't gotten all the product that they want. So now with manufacturing in Europe, you know, real time, you've eliminated lead time. We've added that additional capacity. We have warehousing to build inventory. So now we're going to unconstrain that business, you know, moving forward. So I'm really excited to see, you know, just how much it grows when it has unconstrained supply. Especially because, I mean, just one video alone on TikTok, it had like 56,000 likes for this just one woman. She's trying the, you know, the the, the blue lemonade uh, Calypso drink and she just loves it. She said it flew off the shelf um, within 24 hours. So I think it's just fascinating how you get, I mean, it's a good problem to have, but at the same time, you still need to manage, you know, how you're going to get more product into that store. And and speaking of, you know, sort of the, the managing the deliveries of the product, you, you mentioned that you work with 3PLs, you work with 4PLs. Now, I, I did a story recently on this popcorn manufacturer or this, you know, popcorn company that was talking about all of the things that they wish they knew that before they started working with the 3PL. And they mentioned that managing the communications was the most important thing to them because they were so used to managing it all that when they outsourced it to a 3PL, they were really frustrated when they weren't getting the the, the real-time communications. As, as a, a customer yourself, as a shipper yourself, how are you, what are your preferences when it comes to working with a 3PL? Do you want constant communication or do you just want to know that they're handling it? You know, it, it's, I think it it's dependent upon the situation. So uh, when we launched our 3PL, the warehousing side of the business, um, you know, we have stayed, you, we stayed very close. I mean, there's, there constant communication, um, regular meetings every day, understanding the status of inventory, status of shipments, um, you know, following through just to make sure that they, they understand, you know, what the load plan is. Um, I think once you get that relationship and you get that, those lines of communication established, you get systems integrated and you know that they're functioning properly. Um, you don't need to, to manage it, you know, minute by minute or day by day. It, it turns into more, 
uh, a week to week, month to month. And mm-hmm. then when things change, so we're always scaling up. So we recently, with that same 3PL, moved from a smaller site to a larger one. A lot went into the scope, you know, the understanding of how our business is growing, how that's going to change the demand on their organization, um, how transportation is going to flow. So you kind of move back into that high touch to make sure that's understood, the proper plans are in place, those plans are being executed against, and then you're following the results as you go. So it, you know, ultimately, you know, you want to work to get to the point where it's necessary communication, you can understand how the business is performing, you have the right touch points, but at the same time, you know, you've brought them in to manage a part of your business for you and and part, you don't want to be managing it for them. So, but it takes time, you know, you start in one place and let the, let the, the results of the integration and the performance kind of dictate how you manage moving forward. Yeah. Cause it really, it's almost like a partnership rather than just outsourcing it and trying to get it off your plate. Whereas, you know, when it's a problem with deliveries, it becomes everybody's problem it, if you can't get your product in the store. It is. And and so the, you know, our 3PL and our 4PL, which is more the, the transportation management, they are an extension. They are our company. So my 4PL is my, my transportation department. My 3PL is my warehouse hmm. and it's my team. You know, it's, they're tied to our KPIs and, and our objectives. And I view them as an extension of our organization. And I think they view us the same way that they are part of, of King Juice in Calypso and a key part, you know, of our growth. For, for folks who don't know, can you explain sort of, I guess, the, the hierarchy of, of King Juice versus Calypso? Is, is Calypso more of the, the I guess, well-known brand? Is, is that yeah. a be- better way to put it? Yeah. So King Juice is actually the, the name of the company, right? So that started first as a co-manufacturer, then okay. the owner developed the Calypso brand. And then we, you know, the rest is history. So King Juice is the company. Calypso Lemonade is our is our brand. Gotcha. I wasn't sure if maybe Calypso was the the top tier brand, and then the you know the everybody else falls under the umbrella. Uh, but thank you for clearing that up. Now, now yeah. as far as your 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 transportation, I guess forecasting is concerned, which I think that's probably everybody who is in lo- some sort of logistics right now that's a love hate relationship with that <laughs> word. So, yeah. how are you managing you know future capacity and and future transportation constraints? Um, we just had a couple ports that were shut down over. In, in China that might not affect your, your business, but it does affect other areas of the supply chain, which ultimately affects us as, as well. How are you planning for the future without, you know, all of these uncertainties in place? Yeah. I mean, it, it's, you know, it, it goes back to that forecast, right? And we, we, you know, we drive that forecast to how that's changing our transportation needs, both in total but you know what parts of the country that we're growing in, um, so that's an element, right? To to prepare our partners to support us. But that whole complexity that you know you mentioned, you know what's happening in China. Well, what's happening in China, you know, influences containers that come into the United States and the timing of what in the volume of that, which then influences congestion in ports and the railroads. So all of that influences my ability to get 
product to my customer. So it is all related, but the, the whole strategy of going with a 4PL. So historically we manage transportation internally. So I would run a bid, you know, and I had uh, I have a small group that would tender loads and just manage the day-to-day through brokers. What we've realized is one, our growth, and two, this complexity, you know, associated with transportation, all the constraints, we realized that that we didn't have the right resources, people-wise, the right skills, the right management systems in a TMS, or the the reach into the transportation market to really manage transportation effectively. So it, it, it can enable growth instead of disable. So moving to a 4PL was all about enhancing our capability to be able to deal with this complexity. Because what I get is a company that is, you know, people that resources way more than I had assigned to me, their, their logistics experts, they're experts in execution, they're experts in procurement, they're experts in network analysis, um, they have their experts in systems. So I bring that capability to my organization, I get to leverage their TMS system, and then they have the reach to get to way more carriers than I would ever be able to touch and the capability to manage the complexity associated with different regions, different modes, changing dynamics at the ports and in the rail yards to keep our product moving. So it, it, that 4PL solution is, is our response to a market that is more difficult than I've ever seen in my 30 years. And I'm not sure if it's going to change, you know, that quickly. Yeah. Cause I mean, for, for better or worse, we're in a, you know, a global economy where everybody is just dependent on everybody else. And that can always uh, lead to some unforeseen issues. And, and as you're talking about forecasting and planning out, and, and as we sort of close out this conversation, what advice would you give to, to other companies that are facing similar issues with their supply chain, with, you know, getting goods delivered on time and, and, and regularly, what advice would you give to them? I think, uh, you know, it starts with your company's capability, I think, in, in really assessing, like we did, are we really in a position to be successful given the circumstances, which, you know, the growth of your business, the complexity of your business, and what is happening in the market? Um, to me, that's, that's number one. Are you really in a position to be successful managing in a situation that we are today. Um, if you don't get that right, you know, it doesn't matter what strategy you have, what partners you have, if you don't have the right capability in place, that's where I'd start is, is you got to challenge yourself around that. We decided we want to focus on being very good manufacturers, marketers, um, developers of this product you know, and my supply chain's geared around that, good buyers of raw materials, you know, good man- managers of suppliers. I'm not going to be a great warehousing company and I'm not going to be a good transportation management company. That's where I get to bring those partners in that have that expertise. So my whole supply chain functions effectively and enables growth. 
Awesome. I mean, just just great advice, I think, for a lot of companies that are struggling out there to, to deal with rising transportation costs and just rising, you know, consumer demands and trying to meet those demands and, and those expectations. All right, John, where can folks follow more of your work, Calypso, all that good stuff? Where can they pick up a Calypso? Uh, they can get it uh, many major retailers, uh, Walmart, you know, Kroger, Winco, uh, all their C stores uh, in their area. Um, you can follow us at www.drinkclipso.com. We have a huge social media presence. So uh, go out there and Google us and you will find us everywhere. Awesome. Well, perfect, John. I, I appreciate your time. Awesome insight into the, the, the world of, of transporting you know, lemonade supplies, which I think a lot of us could use a, a taste of the islands right about now. So thank you again for your time. No problem. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Digital Dispatch Podcast. And if you did like it, I would love if you could rate and review the show on Apple or Spotify. It'll take you like two minutes of your time, but it helps a ton for a creator like me to be able to show that review like a badge of honor. And it also helps the show get discovered by others. If you'd like to see more of my work, head on over to digitaldispatch.io. I've got some new content collections under the resources tab for folks who are freight brokers, truckers, carriers, freight agents, and also a best of collection for how to fix your website and how to fix your marketing. It's all completely free. And again, that tab is under resources over on the digitaldispatch.io website. The website also includes some links to our social media accounts, along with my products and services, in case any of that is of interest to you. Once again, my name is Blythe Bremleve, and I thank you for sharing your attention with me today. Until next time, have a magical day.